My wife, Katie, and I, in the front row here, is, uh, we're big fans of Netflix. And so we don't have cable, so we watch all of our shows on Netflix. And one of the shows we've discovered on there is Madam Secretary. Has anybody else watched the show or liked the show? A couple people over here. But the, sh- the show, to give you a little uh, context, it follows the life of Elizabeth McCord um, and her family. Elizabeth McCord becomes the Secretary of State, and so she um, is in this high government position, so they're following the life of her family and how she's dealing with this role um, as Secretary of State. And she has a husband and three kids. Um, but, of course, these two sides of her life, Secretary of State and family, can't really be separated because um, they're always intermingling with one another. And so she's this high-ranking official in the government, and so she has this, you know, black, uh, this motorcade of black SUVs that drive her everywhere. They're always parked in front of her house. There's always one running in case there's some sort of emergency so she can take off right away. And, the, and then there's these, these uh, squad of agents that are always protecting her and protecting her family. They can't really go anywhere on their own. And, and sometimes she gets these late-night phone calls where she's being summoned to the White House or to the Situation Room to go and deal with some um, sort of issue. And so here, you, she can't really have, like, this is my job life, this is my family life, but they're always intermingling. And as the show progresses, her family, and especially her kids, come to realize that having a mom who's a high-ranking government official has both privileges and responsibilities. Her children enjoy the privilege of occasionally receiving access to famous or influential people because she can kind of, you know, get them in. Like, oh, so-and-so is speaking here. Like, you guys can get in, and they get all excited about that. And they have these agents who are, are driving them places and protecting them, so they get that privilege. And they also get close proximity to this woman who has this enormous influence in the country who they also call, you know, their mother. They don't call her mom anymore because they're older, but they say, you know, mom, they call her mom, but she's the secretary of state. And at the same time, they soon learn that responsibilities come with these privileges. The world is watching their every move, whereas once their lives could, could go on and they could do things and nobody would really take notice, now anything that could be a newspaper or internet or, or tabloid story becomes one, you know, oh, so-and-so is dating, you know, this person. And so it, it just gets, you know, laid over the front page because she, now she's this person who people are interested in seeing what she's like. And so their actions, they don't just reflect on them. Uh, what, they don't, what they do doesn't just reflect on who they are, but it reflects on who their mom is, the Secretary of State, and thus it reflects on who the president is. And so their actions have this ripple effect um, that just mean much more than a simple um, action that they're doing themselves. And so, as Madam Secretary's children, they now are fellow representatives of the President of the United States as they live their lives. And this scenario in Madam Secretary isn't much different from our lives as Christians, as God's people, as followers of Christ. Because as God's people, as Christ's church, we're given the highest privileges possible because the God of the universe is the one who we call our Heavenly Father. We're also given immense responsibility. With the world watching, we are representatives of God Almighty. Every action by a person who calls himself a Christian doesn't only reflect on themselves, but it reflects on Christ, whose name we represent as Christians, Christians. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from 1 Peter that speaks of the privileges and responsibilities that come from being God's people. And um, this weekend, um, the elders of LifeSpring went uh, on a retreat so they could prayerfully plan for the, for the church's future. And so when they do this, it's often helpful for Pastor Cabot to not have to preach this weekend because it's a lot of work um, to do that. And so um, he, he suggested um, to me that perhaps church planting would be a good 
this would be a good time to do a message on church planting. And so this morning, uh, I want to take time to look at 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but, um, which speaks to our lives individually, speaks to our lives um, as a church, it speaks to you guys, but it also speaks to the cause of church planting. It's one of the passages that I most often think about when I think uh, about why are we starting this new church in Woodstock? Why are we planting a new church there? And so I'm excited to share it with you. Um, and the big question we're going to be answering is this, who are you and why are you here? Who are you and why are you here? We're going to get our answer from the passage, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But first, I want to do uh, a bird's eye view of uh, the New Testament church, the story of um, how the, Jesus and his followers and, and the church grew and expanded in the New Testament. And then after that, we'll zoom in um, to the churches who are receiving this letter um, from the Apostle Peter, um, the letter we call 1 Peter. So let's start off with this bird's eye view, the short story of the church in the New Testament. Jesus was the son of a Jewish couple living 2,000 years ago. Joseph, his father, was a carpenter who, who worked with stone, and uh, Mary was a young girl engaged to Joseph, and they were not uh, yet married, um, and so Mary was still a virgin. And we'd just come out of the Christmas season celebrating the miraculous events that unfolded in this young couple's life, how they were both told, um, God comes and tells them, sends a messenger to them and says, your son, I'm going to make you pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit and your son is going to be my own son. He's going to be me in the flesh and he's going to be the king that your prophets, Israel had prophets, they're messengers of God who would bring God's message to them. They had prophets who said, there's going to be a king, a Messiah, an anointed one, um, who, the, Christ is the other word for that. There's going to be a Christ who I'm going to raise up and he's going to bring my heavenly kingdom to earth. And so Mary and Joseph are told, your son is going to be this person. And they've been looking forward to this for centuries well, everything happened as they were told. They were told all these miraculous things, and they all happened. And Jesus seems to have lived a normal life until about the age of 30. We don't really have much of a, a record of what he was doing from those, you know, those crazy events around his birth um, and until um, he was an adult. But when he does come on the scene, he has a simple message. It's this from Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is re- at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in other words, everything you've read about in the Old Testament is coming true now. The time when God's heavenly kingdom is coming to earth is now. Turn away from what you've been doing. Reorient your life. Turn away and believe this good news that I'm telling you, that the heavenly kingdom the Old Testament talked about is coming to you right now. And this was an exciting and controversial thing for Jesus to say. And as Jesus spread his message, he gathered around himself a group of followers that were called disciples. And in those days, disciples would attach themselves to a rabbi um, to learn from that person. And the disciples, um, they attached themselves to Jesus, and sometimes they would call him rabbi, but even though he didn't go to, to school to be a rabbi, but, but soon they would come to find out and, and realize that Jesus was much bigger than this box they're trying to put him in. They thought, this is a, a rabbi, like, I want to learn from him. Sure, he called me to come follow him, like, I'll learn from him. But they soon learn that their box can't hold him. He did and said things that were much different from what the rabbis of his day said and did. Because Jesus healed people. He taught with authority. He could calm storms. He cast evil spirits out of people. He forgave people's sins, something only God is supposed to be doing. He had an authority unlike anyone else. 
The Old Testament prophets said that God would send a king to bring his heavenly kingdom to earth, that he would be an anointed one, he'd be the Messiah. And over time, Jesus' disciples began to see that Jesus was the Christ, the king their prophets had spoken about. Now one such moment when they realized this was in Matthew chapter 16, the gospel according to Matthew. Let me just read those verses for us. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And Jesus would go on to inform them. He would say, I've just told you these things that it's true, what you've confessed, I am the Christ, but I'm going to go on and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed, but in three days I'm going to be raised from the dead. And his followers were understandably upset by this, but he would tell it to them several more times. He really wanted them to hear it. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. But they seemed to continually miss that last part. I'm going to be raised from the dead. You'd think that would be kind of the focus there instead of like, what, you're going to die? No way. You'd think you'd be like, wait, what? You're going to be raised from the dead? What? Uh? <laughs> but they seem to continually miss that part. So Jesus said something amazing in Matthew 16, and we shouldn't miss it. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so who, who builds Jesus' church? Well, Jesus does. And what won't prevail against it? The gates of hell. Jesus was not talking about erecting a building. This building is not a church. He was talking about his followers. A church is a gathering of Jesus' followers, of people who call him king. And whatever we think we are doing as Jesus' church, we aren't the one building it. Jesus is the one building it. But that naturally leads us to the question, how? How is Jesus building his church? Well, Jesus did suffer and die, just as he said he would. He was nailed to a Roman cross as a rebel. But this was much more than a Roman execution instigated by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus' suffering and death had cosmic significance and eternal significance. For, for on those two pieces of wood, Jesus was taking upon himself the punishment each and every one of us deserved. Jesus was innocent of the charges leveled against him. He walked in perfect obedience before God, but, but none of us has. Each of us has failed to fully commit ourselves to God. Each of us puts other things above God on our priority list. Every single day we choose things other than him. Each one of us fails to follow the two greatest commands of the Bible. Love God with all you have and all you are and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. We have broken the fundamental commands of God's kingdom. We've rebelled against the king and for that, we deserve to be condemned and exiled from it. Jesus did obey those two fundamental commands and he was the only human ever to do it. 
But on that tree 2,000 years ago, Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. He took upon himself the condemnation and the alienation from God that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. It's either, he, it's either we die or he dies. And he did die in our place and he was laid in the tomb. But he did not remain dead because three days later he was resurrected from the dead just like he said he would be. Death could not hold him. New life filled him. And he appeared to his disciples and they worshipped him as God because they recognized that he was none other than God in the flesh, God's own son. And then in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, his disciples are gathered around him and he tells this to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. That's every, everything. All the authority over everything is being given to him. He's king of all. There's no person or place or thing in the universe that Jesus can't point to and say, mine, because he has authority over all of it. There's no place that anybody can go outside of his jurisdiction. Therefore, he says, based on this all-encompassing authority, go and make disciples of all nations. No nation, no people group, no tribe, no society, no culture, no city or town is outside the bounds of his authority. And therefore, he can send us into all of them and say, go and make disciples of them. Tell them how to follow me. Tell them to be followers of me and to love me. Teach them Baptize them as people who have turned to the living God. Teach them to follow my ways, he says. And don't worry, you won't do this alone. Jesus says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so based on his all-encompassing authority and with the promise of his ever-abiding presence, Jesus tells this small group of 11 disciples to go into all the world and to make more disciples. Teach more people to follow me like I've taught you to follow me, he says. So how is Jesus building his church? This is how. It's by sending disciples into the world to make more disciples. And he is with them. He, as we read about the early church in the book of Acts, we find that Jesus kept his promise to be with his disciples and to build his church. Because after describing the type of community that the believers shared with one another, Acts 2.47 says this, And the Lord, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. The Lord Jesus adds to the church. He's the one doing it. He's the one drawing people in. He's the one bringing people to himself. He's building his church. And the king who died in our place is indeed alive again. He's leading his church in a charge against the gates of hell as souls are saved and transferred into his kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness. The book of Acts shows us that where the story of Jesus is told, the the story of his life and death and resurrection, that people are saved and disciples are made and, and churches are formed as they gather together. So that concludes our short story of the church in the the New Testament. From that, and from that bird's eye view, we now swoop down to look at the letter of First Peter, the specific letter written to uh, some churches that are outside of the promised land of Israel. And they're written by the, the exact disciple that we read about in Matthew 16 who confessed Jesus as the Christ. And so now let's read what he told those. Um, let's start looking at what they, he told those churches. 
So the story of Jesus had spread to distant lands beyond Jerusalem and Israel where it started. First, and First Peter, we're told in verse 1, is written to followers of Jesus in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were Christians living outside the land of Israel. Christianity got its start in Jerusalem, but it did not stop there. It kept spreading. And a major theme in this letter is how to live as God's people in a world that is hostile to your faith. In a world where you feel like strangers because all that you hold dear, the world rejects or laughs at or reviles you for or maybe even hates you for. And many today point out how our culture is more and more looking like the first century culture when Christianity um, began and planted its roots. And so First Peter is a message we need to hear today. And um, I think it was about a year ago or two years ago that LifeSpring went through that letter. Our focus is going to be um, on First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Um, Peter has just told his readers that you are the living temple of God and you are um, priests of God who offer sacrifices um, up to God that are pleasing to him. These are spiritual sacrifices. And at the same time, he says, you live amongst people who have rejected the word that you've believed, the word that you believe that has so changed your life that you're living amongst people that have rejected it. But in contrast to those who've rejected the word about Christ, the good news, he writes these words in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's writing to people who are not Jewish. They're not from the nation of Israel. And yet, he's applying language and an identity to them that was used in the Old Testament to describe Israel, the Jewish people whom God first rescued from Egypt and called his own. Our first reading this morning was from two of those Old Testament passages, the passage from Exodus 19 um, and the passage from Hosea um, are ones that Peter is quoting. In the church, the church has not replaced Israel as the people of God, um, but true Israel and the true church are both the people of God. They're one and the same. Peter is writing, he's a Jewish person who grew up hearing, this is who you are as the people of God, nation of Israel, and now he's saying, all these things that I've been told that is, are true of me and my nation, I'm applying to this new group called the church. They're one and the same, both God's people. In these two ch- verses, we hear both the privileges and responsibilities of being God's people. Peter gives us quite a list of privileges starting in verse 9. So let's talk about what they are. First, he says, you are a chosen race, which could also be translated as a chosen people. So if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you're a part of the chosen people of God. You didn't choose him, but he chose you before he created the world. And second, he says we're a royal priesthood or a, a kingdom of priests. God has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Christians are, are people who have a king and his name is Jesus. No matter who is ruling this land or any land or ruling the world, like we always say, we have a king who's higher than any of them. He has all authority in heaven and earth. As members of that kingdom, we enjoy 
the benefits of his kingship, most importantly, salvation from the penalty of our sin that has earned us both condemnation and alienation from God. We also enjoy communion with God. Because Jesus has taken upon himself our punishment, we can now be reunited with God to enjoy a relationship with him. So we have access to God like the priests of the Old Testament had access to him. Only they were allowed to enter the most holy place of the temple. They would go in there and represent the people before God's presence. They would offer sacrifices that would make them clean to be able to enter it. And they would offer sacrifices for the people uh, on behalf of the people so that they could be made right with God too. And now Peter's saying, you... You are those priests now. The appropriate sacrifice has been offered. Jesus was the high priest who offered the appropriate sacrifice. So now you can enter God's presence and be connected with him. So now we all have this privilege, but every citizen of the kingdom of God is a priest because we have access to God through Jesus who cleanses us from our sins and makes us acceptable for him. That's our privilege. But at the same time, we have this responsibility to represent others on behalf, to represent on behalf of others to God, just like the priests of the Old Testament. We can draw near to God because of Jesus, but those who have not trusted in Jesus and their Lord cannot draw near to God. And so we're charged with this taking the knowledge of God to those who don't yet know him. So second, we're a royal priesthood. Third, we're a holy nation, a holy kingdom, or a holy people. God has drawn us to himself, and that makes us holy. And and holiness in the Bible um, is about being set apart. You're, you're distinct in some way. You're, you're kind of other. You're, you're not like the other things. And so we are different and distinct from those around us. Because we are God's people, we are special to him. And that makes us distinct from the rest of the world. And it also only makes us distinct, but commands us to also be distinct. We have the privilege of enjoying God's holy presence in our lives by the Spirit dwelling inside of us. And we also have the responsibility to live unique lives because of that privilege. Because we're now God's holy people, we're called God's people, we are to be different, just like he's different from everything else. Fourth, we're a people for his own possession. This echoes the statement in Exodus 19 that we read that we are God's treasured possession. In other words, God doesn't save us and adopt us as his people and look at us indifferently. He doesn't um, look at us as his people and kind of go, meh, not that excited about them. That's just, they're just kind of lame. They're just down there doing their thing. No, that's not what he does. He's, we are his treasured possession. He redeemed us out of slavery so we could be his, so he could call us his. We're God's. He's our God and we are his people. And he rejoices over us with gladness. He exalts over us with loud singing. We are his glorious inheritance. There's two passages in the Bible. One says this about individuals and once it says this about the church as a whole. It says, Jesus loved us. He loved you. He loved us and he gave his life for us. We're not just some nameless number out, out there, but Jesus loved you. He loved us and he gave his life up for us. He's bound himself to us as a husband binds himself to his bride and we belong to God as his treasured possession. So we turn to our big question, who are you and why are you here? What a powerful answer we just got to the first part of that. Who are you? We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We have been given these enormous privileges chosen by God, his royal priesthood, entrance into his kingdom, into his presence 
or the apple of his eye, his treasured possession. So who are we? We are God's people. That's a summary of it. And that's who we are. But why are we here? We've already heard some just from the description of the privileges. But Peter tells us clearly why we have been made all these things. He says at the end of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has a purpose for making us who we are. He gives us all these privileges, but he also gives us a responsibility with them. And sometimes this word proclaim, we can limit it to a couple different things. One, we can limit it to what pastors or preachers do on a Sunday morning. Oh, I, I, you know, here I am. I'm proclaiming the word of God. I'm fulfilling you know, what God said to do. Um, and that is a true part of it, um, but it's not all of it. And the other thing we can limit it to is we can think, okay, proclaiming the excellencies of God. Well, I do that when I'm singing to God. I'm proclaiming his praises to him. I'm singing about how great he is. But, and both of those um, are true, but the word can't be limited to that. The proclaim word here is a messenger word. It has to do with informing or announcing or reporting a message or news. And, and Peter's readers, they already know what they should be proclaiming. They already know the message. It's the news about Jesus. The, Peter says, this news has come to you. And it's con- caused you to be born again into this living hope. Your lives have changed as a result of it. And so they know the news that they're supposed to be reporting. It's the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The good news of salvation Found in him. But this news is attached to the God who has made it possible. So Peter tells his readers, it's not simply that you're telling people about Jesus, but at the same time you're announcing to the world the excellencies of the, of the one who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There, God is the one who has done this, God the Father. And so he's saying, report to the world how amazingly good and great and glorious and gracious is the God who saved you. Inform the world of the powerful work he has done in your life to summon you out of the dark pit you were once wallowing in and how he set you on the solid rock of his son where you have light and life only he can give. And he's saying, tell the world about that kind of God. Peter goes on in verse 10, he says, once you are not a people, You're wandering in darkness. You're separated from God, alienated, estranged, and hostile to him. But now, he says, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, you were dead in your sins. You were under God's wrath. You could not approach God because you rebelled against him and were in need of his forgiveness. Well, not anymore. But now, he says, you have received mercy. Everything has changed for us. Some of the most... Um, gripping passages in the Bible or when the authors describe this is what you once were and now this is what you are now. And the, it's usually um, put together with a but God. This is what you were. Look how horrible your situation was. But God did this. But now you are God's people. But now you have received mercy. So who are you and why are you here? You're God's people. You're God's people. You belong to him. You don't belong to anybody else. You don't belong to your spouse. You don't belong to your father or your mother. You don't belong to your employer. If, if there's any situation in which you feel enslaved, you can say to yourself, I am God's possession. I am his. But it comes with a responsibility. 
you have a purpose. So why are you here? You're here to proclaim God's excellencies. You are here to tell those with whom you live, work, and play how awesome the God is who made you his own when you least deserved it. It's to, it's to welcome other people into that song we sing, How Great is our God, and that should be the, the song of our hearts, and we want to welcome other people, and like, I want you to see how great my God is. I want to welcome you into seeing him for who he is. And so let's just take a moment and breathe that in, LifeSpring Community Church. You are God's people. You are his. You are his people. You are his treasured possession. You are priests of the Most High King charged with connecting others to him. But if we're honest, we can struggle with telling others about Jesus. We can struggle with telling others about our great God. And I've often asked myself, why is this? Why don't we tell others about how amazing God is, even, if, even when we know we're supposed to? Like, I know I'm supposed to do that. I know I'm supposed to tell people about great gods, but we know we're supposed to do it. Why don't, why don't we do it? Well, I think it's because, and this is you know, my own confession too, is I think it's because we don't really see him as that amazing. We don't inform others of his excellencies because we don't really think he's that excellent. He isn't really all that great, so there's not much to tell. Why would I you know, boast about him? Why would I tell people about him? We're not, it feels like a should. It's a, it's a have to instead of a, a get to because we're, you know, we, there's some, many things in life we're told, you know, you have to do this. And we're like, okay, I'll do it begrudgingly because my job depends on it or, you know, whatever else depends on it. We're scared of people, other people being mad at us. So we do it. It's a have to. Um, and this is one of those things where I think often we're like, oh, I'm, I know I'm supposed to do it and I have to do it. And, but that keeps us from wanting to do it. We don't want to do it. So the thing is, we tell people about how great we think things are all the time. We talk about great catch a football player made. We talk about the great hunting or fishing trip we had. We tell people about our, our great cars, our great vacation, our great Christmas, our great week, our great job, our great kids, our great husband or wife, this great YouTube video we found, this great new board game we played, this great new boss or coworker we have, this great new book we read. And we aren't very shy about telling people the greatness of all these other things that we have in life. We feel quite free to inform people about our opinion about all those things. But why not how great our God is? Now, a responsibility is a responsibility whether we feel like it or not. We have a responsibility to tell others about how great our God is, whether we're motivated to or whether we want to. It's still a have to, even if we don't want to. But we can, we can do work on our hearts to cultivate a true desire and a love for telling others about how great our God is. A quote that I read years ago says this, If the gospel is renewing you internally, it will be propelling you externally. So said in reverse, if you're not propelled externally, the gospel isn't renewing you internally. This means the answer to our, our motivation problem, our desire problem, is the gospel. If we're not motivated to share the gospel, the answer is go back to the gospel. Go back to seeing how great God is. Who is he? What has he done? What has that made me to be? And then out of that flows a true desire to tell people about how great he is. 
It's the good news about who God is and what he's done through Jesus. Reflect on it. Dwell on it. Hide the truth in your heart. Meditate on God's grace shown to you, his mercy, his love, how he chose you and redeemed you and he adopted you. And he did all this when you were in active rebellion against him in your sins. When you were lost in darkness, dead in your sins, far from him and without hope, God acted in your life, in my life. He reached down into it without you deserving it, without you asking for it, and he called you out of your darkness into his marvelous light. Only he could do that. We couldn't do it ourselves. It's all his grace. We find it easy to talk about the things we love because it just flows out of us and we can't help but talk about it. So if you don't have an overwhelming desire to talk about God with others, return to the gospel and cultivate a heart of worship and thanksgiving for who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus. He's worth telling people about. He's better than all the other things we tell people about, our jobs and cars we buy or whatever else. Our big question today is, who are you and why are you here? So you are God's people and you are here to proclaim God's excellencies. And so to close, I want to give three practical ways for how to proclaim God's excellencies. How do we do this with the people we live with and work with and and do other things with, boat with, fish with, hunt with, and um, do whatever else with? How do we do that? Well, first, this is a message that Peter told his readers, live a distinctive lifestyle that demands a gospel explanation. Live a distinctive lifestyle that demands a gospel explanation. And we do this as individuals, we do this as family units, but most importantly and most powerfully, we do this as a church. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my followers by your love for one another. And, and most, most often, the New Testament talks about the church being the temple of God, not this building. The people in the temple in the Old Testament was where people went to meet with God. So where do people go to meet with God today? They meet him him through us because we're now his temple and us as a church is the most powerful way that we show the world our God. Our life together is a witness to the world of what God is like because remember, like when we were talking about Madam Secretary, the world is watching. They're looking for a story. What are these people like? And if that's what they're like, then what is their God like? If they're, you know, grumpy and seething all the time and gossiping and they aren't really, you know, ever seem to have any lasting joy? Like, what is their God like? How can he be um, all that great? And I'm not saying, you know, we always have to sort of just put on a happy face. Like, there's times that we are depressed. There are times that we're going through difficulties and struggles and suffering in life. Um, and we don't have to say, like, ah, it's all good because I believe in God. No, the, the Bible is full of sorrow and in, in inviting us to, to lament and cry with one another. But at the same time, where where do we put our hope? Where do we put our grounding when we go through suffering like that? The rest of Peter's letter tells about this distinctive lifestyle. It looks like returning blessing when we are cursed. It looks like doing good when wrong is done to us. When we're reviled, we do not revile in return. It looks like living such good lives that are so distinct from the world that people are led to ask, what is the reason for your hope? Why do you live the way that you do? The Apostle Paul talked about spreading the aroma of Christ wherever we go. And Jesus told us we're to be salt and light. And so how do 
we as a church leave a distinctive flavor and aroma wherever we are present? How do we be lamps that are coming into a dark room when everyone else maybe feels like they're stumbling in the darkness trying to figure out life or, or pretending they have it figured out? How do we be a, a light that's showing them like this is a different way to live and it points back to God? We show the world our love for God and one another and for others. So here's some just a very practical rundown list, and I don't expect you to write them all down. Um, but just really simple ideas. Tip generous, generously at restaurants. Talk to your neighbors. Invite them over. Look for ways to bless people at work and in your neighborhood. Pray for people. Admit when you are wrong and ask for forgiveness. That is a distinctly easy way to be distinctly Christian. And here's another one. Don't gossip about anyone and don't gripe and complain about things all the time. Um, we can... These are things that we're just so easily prone to. All humanity is prone to this. We're prone to not be thankful to God for the things he's given us. And we just look at all the things that he's not given us. These are very simple ways to live a lifestyle that is distinct from the world. So first, live a distinctive lifestyle that demands a gospel explanation. Second, be prepared to give a gospel explanation in two ways. By sharing the Jesus story and by sharing your story. Be prepared to give a gospel explanation by sharing the Jesus story and by sharing your story. Because Jesus told us our fundamental job description is witnesses. We're witnesses testifying to what, one hand, one hand in the Bible, not this is now you swear in there. We're witnesses testifying to what God has done in our life, how he came into it and how he rescued us and saved us and how we're different today than when we were before. But I'm still growing in these areas because I know that he's begun the work in me, but it hasn't been brought to completion yet. And so here's where I'm still working. But this is, all the, this is what I've been taught about who God is and what he's doing in my life. He told us, Jesus told us we'd be his witnesses to the rest of the world who testify to who he is and what he's done. So when people ask, why are you doing this? Why are you living this way? Why are you living, you know, this, they're probably not going to say this, why are you living this distinctive lifestyle? They're taking notice and saying, like, you're doing something that other people don't do. Why are you doing that? Why are you inviting me over for dinner? That's a, we've, we've discovered in our neighborhood that that's, neighbors don't know each other. And so it's a really easy way to show, like, it's hospitality, love for stranger, inviting people into your home. You want to get to know them. You want to love your neighbor, your literal neighbor, as yourself. And you want to show them and be connected to them and show that love. Why are you doing this? What do we say when people ask? Respond by telling them, because I followed Jesus and he changed my life, can I tell you how? Or have just a two-sentence, well, because I used to live this way. Jesus came into my life and he saved me. And because of that, I want to be like him. And this is what he was like. He loved other people like this. Be ready to tell someone about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Be ready to tell someone the story of how God came into your life and how he has changed you. We're all male men or male women or male children. You know, we're all, we can be all of them. But the mailman doesn't deliver letters that he wrote. He's delivering letters somebody else wrote, but he's been entrusted with this letter to bring it to somebody else. And so the message that we have, the letter that we have, is not something that we've written. We haven't concocted it. It's right here. It's in this, this book. And so we have been entrusted with it to go and deliver it to the people that God wants to take it to. And that's all nations, all people groups. And we can go and deliver it. I mean, the, the mailman couldn't put a letter in our mailbox unless he had the authority to do so because 
if somebody else puts a letter in your mailbox, that's a federal crime. Um, but he has the authority to do so. And so Jesus says, I have all authority. There's no place I don't have authority. You're my followers. Take the message out. There's no place that you, no mailbox you can't put it into. So first, live distinctive lifestyle that demands a gospel explanation. Second, be prepared to give a gospel explanation by sharing the Jesus story and sharing your own story. Third, invest your life in proclaiming the news of God's excellencies. Invest your life in proclaiming the news of God's excellencies. A life well lived is a life invested in what matters most. And what matters most is living according to our God-given identity and our God-given purpose. Enjoying the privileges and fulfilling the responsibilities of being called the people of God. Peter says, Church, you have one job. Proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Report to the rest of the world how great your God is because they're still living in darkness. They're still living in bondage to sin and Satan and death and the only way they'll be free from it is if you tell them the message that will set them free from their bondage. You've been given the letter. It sets you free. Now go and deliver it to other people. Greg Main preached here a few weeks back and his life motto is, I'm going to heaven and taking as many people with me as I can. That's a pretty good, simple way to say it. And the great thing about the responsibility to tell others about Jesus is that it's really a privilege as well. Because God could just do it. He doesn't need us. But he chooses to use us as the means by which he saves other people. Somebody came into our life and we heard the message, whether it's from a pastor um, standing in front of you like what I'm doing or just some you know, co-worker sharing with you or your mom or dad or, your, or sibling. They share the message with you and they are a part of God's work in your life to bring you to himself, to call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We bring the message to people and God does the work, but he uses us as his instruments in the process. It's sort of like, you know, like a scalpel or a baseball bat. None of them, they're just tools. They're instruments to be used. And they don't really do anything until you know, somebody picks it up and, and uses it. And we're instruments and we don't, we're not going to really be able to do anything unless God is the one picking us up and using us. We get the privilege of being a part of God, changing people's lives. We get to see people born again into a living hope right before our eyes. We get to see them transferred from the kingdom of darkness where Satan rules over them to the kingdom of God's Son. We get to see them saved from their sins past, present, and future, adopted into God's family and made new by the power of God. And that is an amazing thing. And we can either sit on the sidelines and watch it happen Or we can be a part of God's rescue team, working with him on the field as he does his great work of salvation in our lives and other people's lives. And so we each need to invest in proclaiming the news of God's excellencies individually, but even more so we need to do it as a church. And I don't mean just the leadership. Sometimes we can hear, oh, the church is going to do that. Okay, you know, you know Pastor Cabot and, and Pastor Kevin are going to go take care of that and they're going to, they're going to make that happen. They're going, to, you know, they're going to invest and they're going to figure out how to do this. But no, it's, they aren't the church. The church is the people of God and God gives people to the church to shepherd it and lead it. But you are the church. Every person has been called by God. And this is why LifeSpring Community Church is so integrally involved in church planting in starting new churches where, new church, where more churches need to be. That's why our group is in Woodstock, and that's why you are commissioning us on February 12th. 
And I like to think of church planting as gospel planting. We're working together to plant the gospel in Woodstock, a city that desperately needs more people in churches witnessing to the greatness of God, more people saying, let me tell you about how great my God is and invite you to sing this, this song with me as I praise him for it. So both locally and globally, as Jesus' church, we've been given the responsibility to spread the, good, the news of his life, death, and resurrection to those who have not yet heard it. And we need to be active about this work because it is the mission the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave for us to do. So let's just take a moment um, to reflect on this responsibility um, that flows out of the privileges we've been given with access to God. Um, let's just take a moment to reflect and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we uh, remember what Jesus said that when we do your will, we are just unworthy servants doing what our master has asked of us. And we are unworthy to be your servants. And yet you have called us. Once we did not have mercy, you've given us mercy. Once we were not your people, and now we are your people. And so you have made us fit for this task, even in our weakness, even in our stumblings, even in our sin that we still are wrestling with. You can use us to do the amazing work of miracles of calling people who are dead in their sins to be alive in Jesus. It's something we can't do on our own. And would you help us this morning to walk out feeling um, the uplifting of the privileges that you've bestowed on us that we're undeserving of? Would you also give us a, a motivation and a desire and a, to please you by fulfilling the responsibility you've given, which is even a privilege in itself, that you would use us to accomplish your will and we trust in your power in all of this, in your grace when we fail. And would you help us each walk out of here with a new sense of purpose, a new sense of identity. It's in your sons' name that we pray. Amen.